invite you to join me in a moment of prayer. Wherever you're at, just invite you to close your eyes and make some space, make some room for Jesus to come and speak, for you to speak to Jesus through prayer. I'll lead us in some prompts, and I just ask that you speak to God and allow room for Jesus to work in your heart. Take some time today just to give thanks to to God for who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Maybe this morning you're carrying some burdens, some anxieties. Maybe it seems like your family blew up or you blew up on the way to church today or your kids all the, the anxiety that's associated with coming to worship, your heart's not in a worshipful spot. So take some time to ask God to, to search you, release your anxieties to him. God, we know you hear all these things that we present to you. You know you know us. You know the number of hairs on our head. You knew us in the darkness of the womb. So God, we give you thanks and praise. We invite you to pray for, for your heart and for your mind to be attentive to the living word of God. Pray for those around you, the same thing. God will be speaking. And I ask that you pray for me. Pray for me to communicate God's truth through the story that we're invited to be a part of today. God, we ask that your word would be living and active in all of us. This would not just be something we do because it's Sunday, but God, this would be something that you, that we understand that you invite us into something that's bigger than ourselves. That you're inviting us, and, and more than inviting us, you come and you meet us. You seek us out. You find us in the places where we think that we're unfindable. So God, we pray that our hearts would be attentive to the whispers of your spirit today. Come and speak. May we hear and live in obedience and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And take a seat. Just as a reminder of something coming up this Friday, this Friday evening from 6 to 8.30, this space, the auditorium, will be open for what we're calling the upper room. And as a church, our focus for 2023 is to, is to grow in prayer as a church and to, to allow God to grow us and to change us as we press into praying more and more intentionally. And so we've set aside the first Friday of every month from 6 to 8.30 to have what we're calling the upper room. And this auditorium will be open for you to come for five minutes, for two and a half hours, to maybe spend the night. I don't know if that you want to pray that long. Um, but it will be open this Friday. If you uh, 
uh, would like to come pray and join us. There'll be some pastors here as well. And this room will just be a place where you can meet God and set aside some intentional time to pray. So it's this Friday, 6 to 8.30, and we hope you can join us for the upper room. My name is Michael. I serve as discipleship pastor here, and I'm excited today to be with you and to open up the word together. And we are going to continue and end our series that we've been calling Resurrection Stories Today. So we've started off every week of this series since Easter with this affirmation that Jesus has risen from the dead. So let's do it one more time just to remind ourselves because we are very forgetful people. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen from the dead. And for many of us, that seems like an almost unbelievable statement. From the very beginning of this story about Jesus rising from the dead, there has been doubt. There's been doubt. So throughout this series, we've explored many things. We've explored in the first week how baptism unites us with Jesus, how we unite our stories with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and the baptism waters. And then Jesus raises us to new life. We heard some stories about people's testimonies, how God changed them. Last week, we looked at a story about how Jesus and the resurrection transforms the way that we read the scriptures together. When Jesus met these two followers of his who had no idea that he showed up on their journey, leaving the grief of Jerusalem to go back to their everyday life in Emmaus, Jesus shows up to them on the road to Damascus, or the, not the road to Damascus, that was Paul. Saul, who became Paul, they were on the road to Emmaus, another road where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus showed up to two people. Wow, that was a connection I never thought of before right there. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul, who was Saul on the road to Damascus, and to these followers on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up to them. He tells them all the scriptures point to himself. They get to their house. They break bread. And in that breaking of bread, they see Jesus for who he really is, the resurrected Messiah. And uh, Luke tells us that they run back to Jerusalem, seven miles. They tell all the other believers who are gathered. They, of course, already know. And they tell these two followers, the Lord appeared to Peter. So we're continuing today in these stories that the Gospels record for us about these events that took place after Jesus rose from the dead, not because we're disputing the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what we're trying to do at all. Rather, my my aim for all of these thoughts over the past three weeks is that I hope you're beginning to see that you and I, as followers of the resurrected Jesus, were invited into this story that Jesus is telling, the story of resurrection. And that the same resurrection that occurred to Jesus on that very first Easter morning when Jesus, over the course of three days, he was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning. That that same reality can happen to us. Happens to us when Jesus takes us from death to life, when we have spiritual new creation, when we are dead to sin and Jesus invites us to live and the power of his spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so today we're going to look at doubt, doubt in light of the resurrection. You see, people have been doubting and disbelieving this historical reality of the resurrection since the very day that it occurred. Matthew, the gospel writer, gives us these brief verses about some people who were at the resurrection experience When whatever happened on that first Easter Sunday, when some angels showed up, there was an earthquake, the stone was rolled away. The women went to the tomb to find the body of Jesus and it wasn't there and they got this message from Jesus. 
And then later Jesus met them in the garden. They run back to the disciples. They tell them the news that he's not dead. He's alive. Jesus is alive. The disciples in disbelief run. They find an empty tomb. And then we get these stories, stories like the road to Emmaus last week. But Matthew tells us this one interesting detail that no other gospel tells us, that people began to doubt. In fact, people were paid to tell the opposite story of the resurrection. Matthew tells us this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. He says that as the women, they'd just been to the tomb, they'd met the risen Jesus, and now they were on their way back to the disciples. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. The guards who were at the tomb where Jesus was risen from the dead. And they told, they told the leading priests what happened. And then those priests, they called a meeting with the elders. And they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe of money. And they told the soldiers this. You must say, Jesus' disciples, they came in the night while we were sleeping. They had to telling themselves that they were sleeping on the job because they were supposed to be guarding the tomb, making sure no one would get in or come out. But perhaps they fell asleep. And they were told they had to tell other people that they were sleeping, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And so Matthew tells us in verse 15, the guards accepted the bribe. They got some money for it and said what they were told to say. And their story, their story, that Jesus' disciples came to steal the body of Jesus in the middle of the night, and that he really wasn't risen from the dead, that story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it to this day. You see, people still doubt that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. I mean, let's just think about this for a moment. How many dead people have you seen come back to life? I'm sure it didn't happen last week. I'm sure it hasn't happened even in our lifetime, right? We don't know too many dead people that come back to life. And just saying that out loud sometimes seems like that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And people struggle to believe the fact that Jesus was dead in the grave and he came back to life by the power of the Spirit of God. That is incredible news. It's almost unbelievable news And sometimes we look at these disciples and these stories of the gospels and we say, ah, we would never be like them. Never. I'd believe it if I saw it. I'd believe it if I heard the report about it. And yet today we're gonna look at how doubt and faith in these stories of the resurrection of Jesus, how they play out. We're gonna look at specifically at a man named Thomas who unfortunately is often called Doubting Thomas, although we're gonna look at how he's not the only one that doubted this resurrection story of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 24. And uh, we're going to go a number of places today, but we'll begin in Luke 24. We'll go spend most of our time mostly in John chapter 20. We're going to touch on some things in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before we we begin reading in Luke chapter 24, I want to give you the big idea. I think it's important to tell you where we're going so you know where we're going in this and what the goal is this morning. Here's the big idea that I think we can pull out of this story for us today and that I believe is true for all of us. Wherever you're at on your journey of faith, I believe this, that the risen Jesus, the risen Jesus seeks us. He comes and he finds us in our doubt, in our skeptical doubt, 
And then Jesus invites us to be live. I'll unpack that word in a moment. Not just believe, but to believe and live the gospel story of the resurrection. Okay, that's where we're going for today. The big idea is that the risen Jesus seeks us in our skeptical doubt, and then he invites us to be live the gospel good news story that changes everything of the resurrection in our own lives. So we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, which we ended off last week. Remember those followers of Jesus? They were on the road to Emmaus. They came back to Jerusalem. And we're going to pick up the story right after they got back to Jerusalem. They began telling all the other disciples that we met the risen Jesus and we saw him when he broke the bread. And then Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, something incredible happens. Luke tells us that as these disciples are gathered in Jerusalem, they're telling all these stories about They'd seen the risen Jesus. He appeared to Peter. We saw him on the road to Emmaus that all of a sudden, just as they were telling the others about it, Jesus himself, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. I want you to imagine this scene for a moment. Put yourself in in this group of disciples and followers of Jesus. You're gathered. Your Messiah has just been killed your rabbi, your follower. There's all these wild reports that people have seen him, that he's back from the dead. Well, you know that dead people don't come back to life. And all of a sudden in your gathering, he shows up. He shows up. And the very first thing that Jesus says to them is peace. Peace be with you. He cuts through all their confusion, all their ambiguity, all their doubt, all their possible disbelief all their disorientation. And he says, I'm here right now. Peace. I'm bringing you peace. My peace, I'm giving you. But notice the reaction of this whole group in verse 37. The whole group was startled and they were frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. A ghost. Jesus couldn't really possibly rise from the dead, right? They thought he was a ghost. And Jesus goes on to ask them this question in verse 38. Why are you frightened? Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Jesus asked them. So he shows up in their disorientation and their doubt, and he presents himself to them. He begins to question why they're doubting, why their hearts are so full of grief and doubt. And then he says these words to them once he shows up. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Jesus is not a ghost. He's a physical body right in front of them like you see me right now. He says, you can see that it's really me. And then the invitation is not just to look and see, but to touch. Jesus says, touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies. You see as you see that I do. And as he spoke, Jesus showed him his hands and his feet. In the middle of their gathering with being disoriented and full of doubt, Jesus shows up and he His appearance frightens them. It frightens them. I'm sure they gasp in awe, like, is this really happening right now? And they think it's a ghost. Jesus shows them his hands, his feet. He says, I have a body. Ghosts don't have bodies. Let 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 me linger here for a moment and possibly go on a theological tangent that I'm gonna try to rein in just a minute, but I think it's important here. Jesus shows up. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not a phantom of their imagination. 
Jesus has a physical body after he rose from the dead. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because I think our conceptions about what happens after we die are greatly influenced by a dichotomy that we often talk about, or we often just perceive that we're unaware of, that we as humans are made up in these two different parts of soul or spirit and body, that these are two different dichotomies that you and I are made of. And we get this idea more from the Greeks than from the Bible, but it just, it's just part of what we believe, even as Americans, that when we die, our bodies will, will, will be left here, which is true, and then our souls, our spirits will go to be with God forever. I think there's some truth in that, but that's not the full truth according to the Bible. And for some of you, I, I probably just disrupted all that. I hope I didn't, but stay with me for here for a moment. Is that what happened to Jesus? Jesus wasn't this spirit that was separated from his body. Something happened to him. He died. He no longer had life when he was put into the tomb. When he was taken off the cross, he was put into the tomb. Something happened that holy Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And scripture gives us some insight into this in the later epistles of the Bible. Jesus did something on that day. He didn't cease to exist by any means, but he was dead. And something happened when Jesus rose from the dead and God gave Jesus a physical body, a resurrected body, a glorified body. He wasn't just the spirit that was hovering. Now he had these crazy powers of teleporting and coming into locked rooms, right? Without going through the door. So he could do things that we can't do in our physical mortal bodies now. He had an immortal, eternal, resurrected body. And in that body, we see these scars, these memories of his sufferings. They are wounds on display to help spark the faith of his disciples who are full of doubt and disbelief. And Jesus shows up in a body. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Why this theological tangent? If we go to Paul, we've been in Paul a little bit uh, the first week we were in this series. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, I think the story of God is going to end with something more than what I think we can even realize. It's not going to end with us as spirits in eternity with that, forever with God. But rather, the, the, the gospel story points to something greater. God is doing a new creation. He's making all things new and all things right as we read in Revelation and in other places that it's more than just us getting saved from this world because this world is bad and being with God in forever and eternity. Is that God wants to do something bigger and greater than that. And that includes the restoration of all things, humanity and the physical earthly nature of what it means because God says at the end in Revelation that there will be a new heaven that comes down to a new earth. All things will be made new and right. And we will have new, physical, glorified, immortal, eternal bodies, Paul tells us. First Corinthians chapter 15, he's having, Paul's addressing some issues about the resurrection. And people are having questions about, well, how's this really going to happen? And he gives us this brief understanding, really the only window into what we know about what's going to happen. We will all die one, one day, someday. We all experience death. What happens between our death and the resurrection, no one really knows. If we are a follower of Jesus, 
we will be with him forever. God tells us that one day there will be judgment for everyone who has ever lived. And then after the judgment, all, all that takes place, everything will be made new and right, and we will be with God forever and eternity. And in there is a resurrection that you and I will experience a resurrection like Jesus experienced resurrection. So Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53. I want, I want you to see why I think this is so important here. Paul tells us that for our dying bodies, we have bodies that are dying right now. Our dying bodies must be changed, transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, Paul says, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. This scripture right here, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Paul says, for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because God gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying here is that sin leads to death for everyone, but death seems to be the victor. But because we are in Christ, we will experience the resurrection one day. We'll have a new body. And we too, like Jesus, will be victorious over sin and death death. Death will not be victorious. The resurrected Jesus will be victorious and those who are with him on his side, who are faithful to him, who believe and have faith in him, will be with him for eternity in the new creation. And we will have new bodies that will be very different. Perhaps we'll have the scars of the suffering that we endured for Jesus if we have endured those things. But Jesus has a physical body when he's raised from the dead. And I want this theological tangent, uh, I'll bring it back to the main point here in just a moment, but I wanna help us to see how the scripture can help us see God and what happens at the end of all time. The resurrection is a part of the story of God that you and I will have resurrected bodies as those who have been redeemed by Jesus. But what about this story? What about the story in Luke chapter 24? Jesus shows up, he says, look at my hands, my feet. He invites them to touch his body. And then we get this statement in Luke chapter 24, verse 41, that the disciples stood there in disbelief. The disciples, they saw the risen Jesus. He says, look, see, touch. And yet they stood there in disbelief, filled also with joy and wonder. And they asked him, Jesus asked them, as if looking at him, touching his resurrected body wasn't enough. Jesus asked, do you have something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Jesus is, has a body. He's got the scars to prove his suffering and now he's actually eating food. He has a real body. His bodily resurrection matters because we too will have new bodies someday. And so Jesus shows up. Luke tells us this story. He invites his disciples. And we see that even in Luke, that these disciples are full of disbelief. They're frightened. They're disoriented. They're doubting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we get this story in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. 
Beginning at verse 19, it says that Sunday evening, the Sunday evening that Jesus wrote on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, it's the same story Luke tells us in John's gospel as well. He gives us some new information, but John says this, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. So the resurrection just happened. Now the disciples are scared to death and they locked the doors, double bolted the doors, triple bolted the doors, whatever they did. Because, why? Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. The same people that put Jesus to death, they fear now are coming to kill them. So then now they're locked behind closed doors and suddenly, same story, suddenly Jesus appears standing there among them and what does he say to them again? John heard the same words that Matthew heard. Peace, peace be with you. And as he spoke, Jesus showed him his wounds in his hand and now in his side from where the Roman soldier's spear had pierced the side of Jesus to make sure that he was all the way dead on the cross. And these disciples here are not filled with doubt or disbelief. They're filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus says to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent, sent me, I'm sending you. And now he's going to commission his disciples here in, in, the, in John's gospel. John tells us something unique. He says, Jesus breathed on them. He breathed on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And Jesus does something unique here in John's gospel. On this resurrection evening, he gives them the Holy Spirit, breathes on them the Holy Spirit. We could spend a lot of time here, but I don't want to focus on this. I want to go on to the next story about a man named Thomas. Right? Jesus shows up in John's gospel, just like he did in Luke on the night of his resurrection. It startles the disciples. They are full of disbelief and doubt, and they're wondering what is happening. But Jesus somehow in a physical resurrected body appears to them. And John tells us this little detail in verse 24. He says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. We meet this man, Thomas, who was one of the 12, who was somewhere on Resurrection Sunday, but he wasn't with the other disciples. Perhaps he was isolating himself from the fear and the disorientation and the doubt of what just happened when he saw Jesus die on the cross. But those disciples who saw Jesus appear to them on the resurrection night told him, we have seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. We've seen his risen body. And poor, unfortunate Thomas gets labeled doubting for this statement right here. In verse 25, he says, but I won't believe. I won't believe it, meaning the resurrection, unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. In this moment, Thomas says what everyone else was thinking, even though everyone else didn't want to admit it. Thomas identifies his skepticism and his doubt. And he says, I need hands-on proof that Jesus, Jesus is alive. I need hands-on proof that Jesus is alive. This week, I've been thinking a lot about doubt. Thomas often gets labeled the doubting Thomas, but everyone doubted. And I think doubt somehow is involved in our own spiritual formation process of following Jesus, that doubt comes even in our belief. And that Jesus comes and he seeks us out in our doubt. We're going to see this in just a moment. But let me, let me help us understand a little bit about doubt for a moment from a 
a writer that I was, I was uh, put onto by a commentary that I was reading this week. There's a writer named Daniel Taylor who wrote a book called The Skeptical Believer. He's a skeptic who's also a follower of Jesus. And he had some incredibly insightful thoughts about doubt and what doubt means even for us on our spiritual journey. He defines doubt as doubt is any misgiving of truth claims. Any misgivings of truth claims. So the disciples are claiming Jesus rose from the dead and Thomas says, I doubt that, right? He's not really pointing to the fact that this is totally unbelievable, but he's not accepting everything that they say without questioning it, right? It's Thomas is somewhere in the middle here. And Taylor uses this word misgivings because it relates to both our intellect and our feelings, Doubt relates to the fact that this is not possible. But it also relates to our, our, our feelings, which we say are in our heart that says, I don't really understand the grief that I feel because Jesus is dead. And it makes no sense. I don't, I don't understand what I'm feeling in this moment, that I'm angry, that my, my disappointment, I'm disappointed. I have doubts. I feel guilty for not believing fully. Right? In that moment, all those emotional things are welling up inside Thomas. And yet he's doubting here. And, and Taylor goes on to describe Christian doubt is any misgiving about the claims that are made in the Christian Bible and subsequent church history about God and Christ and the human experience. He believes that Christians, we as Christians can even doubt God. And certainly that's true. That we can doubt the claims of the Bible. We can doubt the power of God in our own life. We can doubt the fact that perhaps Jesus is that somehow equal to God and was fully God and fully human. All those things we can doubt. They don't make sense. They're confusing. They're not clear. But Taylor concludes this way, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, which we typically would, would uh, define as belief. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but he claims that the opposite of faith is disbelief and disobedience. Disbelief and disobedience. In this moment, Thomas is doubting. He's not disobeying God. He's not disbelieving that the fact that this could be a possibility. Let me contrast two characters in the story for a moment, Thomas and Judas. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus in the garden, right? He was bribed, just like the soldiers were bribed, but he was bribed to betray. Jesus was, or Judas was disobedient. Judas, I believe, disbelieved the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And somehow, he cooperated with the powers of evil through Satan and was a part of this larger story that led to Jesus' betrayal. But Judas was disobedient. And here we see Thomas. Thomas wasn't disobedient. Thomas didn't abandon the disciples. His doubt brought him back to the disciples. His doubt did not lead to disbelief or disobedience. It brought him back to this group of friends who gathered around this rabbi who was their teacher for three years, who taught them all these things about themselves and about his kingdom. And now he's dead. And there are these stories about his resurrection. They don't make sense. But Thomas comes back, Judas betrays and doesn't come back. He winds up killing himself by hanging in a field somewhere. 
But Thomas, in his doubt, returns to Jesus. And we're going to see that Jesus meets Thomas exactly where he's at in his doubt. If you keep reading this story in John chapter 20, in verse 26, it says, eight days later, a week or so passed, and the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them, and again the doors were locked. They're still afraid, though, of those Jewish leaders coming to kill him. And suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing before them. Can you guess his first words? You've heard it two times already. One time in Luke, two times in John. Jesus says this again, peace be with all of you, he says. And then Jesus goes directly after Thomas to speak to him and him alone. Jesus meets us in our doubt, and he went to find and seek out Thomas in his doubt. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Believe, Thomas. Have faith. Be faithful. And here's the moment where Thomas has hands-on proof. Have you ever tried to picture the events that you read and the scripture in your mind? I do that quite often, and thankfully, throughout the history of time, people have been artists to paint for us the things that we hoped that we could see in the past. It's a 16th century Italian painter, Caravaggio. He painted a painting that I'm going to put up here on the screen. And I just want you to look at this. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. That Tom, what Thomas believed and what he thought about the resurrected Jesus, it was Im- impossible. It was unbelievable. It was incredulous. And Caravaggio paints what you and I can only imagine. But I want you to look at this painting for a moment. You got Jesus on the on the right-hand side of that, as you look at it, the left-hand side. You got Thomas bending over, getting as close as he can to the side wound of Jesus, and you got these two other disciples in the background. We blame Thomas for doubting. Caravaggio puts all of them in doubt, right? Look at their foreheads. They've all got the furrowed look of, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Not just Thomas, but the other two as well. And you see Jesus. He seeks out Thomas. He's got his hand on Thomas's hand. And it's as if Jesus is guiding Thomas's hand and his finger into this wound on Jesus's side, right? You can see this. You don't see the end of Thomas's finger because it's inside of Jesus's wound. Do you see the skin of Jesus's body? the flap of it over Thomas's finger, right? This is a physical thing that happened. Jesus is there in the body. The invitation is Jesus seeks him out and invites Thomas, touch, see, experience. And he has hands on proof that Jesus is risen from the dead. You can stare at that painting for a long time and see a lot of things. Thomas's reaction in the moment. I don't know how much time passed when Jesus invited his hand and invited Thomas to touch his side, 
fact, John doesn't even tell us that this actually happened. But in our mind, it happens, right? If you're in the story, this probably happened, just like Caravaggio painted it. I don't know the time that lapsed between Peter touching the side of Jesus and his explanation, exclamation next of my Lord and my God, he says. There's nothing else Thomas could say other than my Lord and my God in that moment. He says, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my master. You are the Lord of Lords and you are God. You are my God. This is possessive. I belong to you. You belong to me. I'm all in this, God. I'm all in this, Jesus. I'm all in this, Master. And in that moment, there is a a moment of confession. And it is the high point of John's gospel. My Lord and my God. And Thomas sees what you and I hoped we could have seen. The writer Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased the Bible in a paraphrase called The Message, has a quote that I want to read to you that I came across this week that I think is so telling and so true. He says this. He says, all men and women hunger for God. See, Thomas was hungry to see God, to see Jesus. But Peterson says that this this hunger is masked and it's misinterpreted in many ways. But it's always there. We might not see it. We might misinterpret it, this hunger that we need to be satisfied by something, rather someone. Peterson says that everyone is on the verge of crying out like Thomas, my God and my Lord, but the cry is drowned out by doubts or defiance. It's muffled by the dull ache of our routines. It's masked by our cozy accommodations with mediocrity. Peterson was a master with words, right? Can you see that in your own life? Has the cry of my Lord and my God been drowned out by your doubts, by your own defiance to say that out loud, to actually accept this belief? Has it been muffled by the ache of routine, masked by all the cozy accommodations that you and I have in the modern world that leads us to mediocrity? Peterson says that then something happens, a word, an event, a dream. there's There's this moment like Thomas that all of us will experience. And then there's this push toward awareness, an awareness of Jesus, of an incredible grace, a dazzling desire, a defiant hope, and a courageous faithfulness. In that moment, Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God, he was touching, he was seeing, he was experiencing this moment that pushed him beyond his doubt into belief, into trust and loyalty and obedience. And he encountered the risen Jesus. Where are we at on that journey? I think we'd all like to encounter the risen Jesus, right? Jesus tells Thomas in verse 29, he says, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Thomas got to see it firsthand. He had hands-on proof. You and I aren't afforded that opportunity. Maybe Jesus appeared to you in a dream. Maybe, Maybe he appeared some other way, but most likely none of us in this room have experienced touching the side of Jesus, even though we would all hope to do that. 
But Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who believe, who have faith, who trust, obey, believe without seeing. That's you and me. That's you and me. You see, if you go back to Daniel Taylor and the skeptical believer, he identifies this spectrum of doubt from what he calls faith to what Jesus calls faithless. And in the middle of this spectrum is doubt. And Taylor says that doubt can lead us to places like skepticism, where we, where we habitually question everything. That leads us to indifference where we don't care about anything. That then leads us to cynicism that says, eh, it's just the way it is, and everyone's out for their own good. That in our doubts, if we, if we lean that way, that can lead us away from Jesus. But our doubts can also be this hinge point that leads us to Jesus, where Jesus meets us as he did Thomas. And that can lead to belief, like the mental ascent that we believe this is true, that Jesus rose from the dead to the certainty that it actually happened and then to the loyalty or the faithfulness that we then live it. Taylor makes this distinction between an abstract belief, belief as, as, as acceptance of any truth claim. But then he says there's an engaged belief. Something happens when you believe something and that changes your life. For Taylor, that was engaged. And he makes up this word, which I think is, is genius. It's a little corny, but I think it's genius. He invents this word to be life, where he weds together the concept of believing and living and life, of believing something and then that changes the way that you live so that in this be living, that your belief and your living create a tangible human life that is committed to the things that are less tangible. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that, that be living or believing which results in changed living, those things actually work out in the realities of day-to-day life. And he argues that belief is not really significant until it becomes storied, storied. And then he invites us into three responses that I wanna share with you today. Taylor says that just like Thomas is that even in our doubt, Jesus comes and he meets us and he invites us and that we can respond to our doubts in many different ways. We can go all the way to indifference, to skepticism, to cynicism, or we can move to belief and the certitude and the loyalty or faithfulness. And, Peter, or, and uh, Taylor says this, that we can respond to doubt in three ways. We can respond in, the, in knowing that the fact that you and I have not been invited into an argument. Jesus doesn't invite us to follow him into an argument about did the resurrection actually happen? Rather, Jesus invites us into a story. He invites us into his story. Second, Taylor says that the story, this story of Jesus gives me not just something to believe intellectually, but it gives me something to do. It asks me to do something with it. And then he concludes this, that the real test of any story, any story that we can think of, any story that we want to live into and be a part of, the real test of any story is this, is what it asked me to love and what kind of life it asked me to live. The story of Jesus asks us to love God and love other people. And the story that Jesus invites us to live into is the story of resurrection 
It asks us to live into this new reality that God has done for us. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We've united ourselves in the resurrection of Jesus. And it should change the way, not just what we think, but how we live our lives. And Jesus meets us even in our doubts. John closes chapter 20 like this. Because it's not just this guy Taylor who wrote the book, The Christian Skeptic. The gospel writer John says the exact same thing. In verse 30, he tells us why he wrote this gospel for us. He says, the disciples, after this event with Thomas, he says, the disciples saw Jesus do many miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. He told all about the miracles Jesus did. But, verse 31, these things are written so that you, me and you, all of us, may continue to believe, not just one time, but be continually believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, trusting, obeying, being loyal to him, you will have life by the power of the name of Jesus. Gospel writer John does the same thing that that author did. He combined believing and living. Because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that should affect how you and I live. And wherever you're at on that journey of doubt or belief or skepticism, Jesus desires to meet you there today. And he invites you to be living out the resurrection story in our own life. See, we live in a world. We live in a world where lots of people take doubt and they take it to the far end of the spectrum, which leads them to unbelief. We live in a world where people of my generation and younger are deconstructing their faith. All these truth claims that they've grown up with, that they were lived into, whether they happened to be in the church or even in society as a, as a whole, all those things are being deconstructed because we can make our own truth. And the largest growing number of religious people today are not Christians. They're people who classify themselves as nuns. They have no religious affiliation, but they are spiritual. They doubt the church. They doubt leaders of the church who've been unfaithful. They doubt the harm and that they may have experienced from the church. That was never God's intention, but it happens, unfortunately. People are deconstructing, they're doubting the faith that has been passed on from generation to generation. And now it's tasked with us today as a church to speak into that doubt, speak into those people who are deconstructing their faith to say, you can reconstruct your faith in Jesus. And doubt can be a part of that because Jesus meets you in your doubt. He seeks you out in your doubt and he says, there is a way that I wanna come alongside of you. Put your hand in the memories of my suffering, like Thomas, and let me lead you into what it means to believe and to be loyal to me and to be faithful, to continue to believe and live as a follower of Jesus, as John says. So I don't know where you're at today spiritually on this journey, on the spectrum of belief from faith or no faith, Maybe you're right in the middle of doubt. If you're watching today online, you're here in, in person, I, I wanna tell you the good news is that Jesus meets you in your doubt. He meets you even in your doubt and he invites you into his resurrection story. So I'm gonna invite you to set your things aside and we're gonna have a few moments of response this morning. 
And then we're going to walk into the week. You can pick up your kids. Before we do that, we, we have some business to do with Jesus. So I invite you to some, take a moment of silence and search your heart. Where are you at? With faith and belief and with Jesus? Do you doubt like Thomas? Do you have questions like all the disciples? It's okay. Do you have hurt from the church? Do you have disappointment? Today, Jesus comes and he desires to speak and meet us in the places where he desires to seek us out and to bring healing and hope and restoration. So just allow Jesus to speak to your heart today. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, today would be an incredible day to say the same thing that Thomas said. My Lord and my God to experience the salvation that only comes from him. And for those of us who've been following Jesus for a while, we even need to say that today. My Lord and my God, Jesus, we're committed to you. So Jesus, I pray that you would help all of us. As we look at the story and these resurrection stories, that you'd help us to see how the resurrection, how you and the resurrection of Jesus desire to change us the way we live. So God, come and work in us in ways that we don't understand, just like you raised your son Jesus from the dead in ways that we don't understand. Help us to step into the mystery. Jesus, meet us in our doubt, we pray. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as you leave today, as you walk into the week ahead, we were going to sing a song, but I had too many words this morning. May you live and be living the resurrection this week and in the weeks to come. May you be reminded that Jesus has brought you from death to life and may you show a world around you that there is power in the name of Jesus just because of the way that you live. So go be live the resurrection this week. If you have questions about faith or what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to meet you at the Next Steps area in the lobby. You can come talk to me. I'll hang out up here at the front. But we're praying for you this week. Live out the resurrection Provide hope for the world that needs it today. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday. And thanks for being here.